Hello, and welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast. The podcast where we talk justice over coffee with a special guest. And this week, our special guest is the broadcaster, communications consultant, and author, Janelle Aldred. Janelle has recently released a book called Communicate for Change, Creating Justice in a World of Bias, which is a timely reflection on the way we communicate with others in today's world, both corporately and personally. She poses the question, how do we advocate for justice in a world deeply divided by racial, gender and class inequalities? Janelle encourages us to acknowledge our unconscious bias. We all have them. To opt for nuanced disagreement and reminds us that nobody wins an argument. I really enjoyed this conversation and it left me with much to consider. Hopefully it will do the same for you. So quick, get yourself a brew, grab yourself a notepad and pen and enjoy, hopefully, my conversation with Janelle Aldred. Hello, Janelle, and welcome to the Justice and Coffee podcast. How are you this fine morning? I am very, very good this morning. The only unfortunate thing about this morning is I have not yet had a cup of coffee. That's the only <laughs> unfortunate thing, but I do have um, a bag of your coffee here, so that will be what I'll be doing immediately after our conversation, but thank you for having me. Uh, now, I know there are people in the background, because I heard you whispered to someone <laughs> a few minutes ago. I think a good friend, which I can only imagine is who you're in company with, would make you a coffee whilst you're, you're <laughs> occupied with this podcast. And it is an essential part of the process talking justice over coffee um but obviously you've got a bag there where's your coffee though got it here oh, okay Thought got I it here mate okay. yeah no yeah you nearly did you nearly did Thought I had you there never <laughs> never got it here so Saturday morning thank you for speaking to me on a Saturday morning what does your Saturday morning normally look like it's not not exactly like this I should imagine normally my Saturday mornings look like uh tidying up um and also it depends some weeks i've recently taken up golf so some oh. saturdays i will go um to the golf course and then otherwise i try to exercise on a saturday but actually i think one of the important things to do on a saturday is to try and decompress from the week true yeah true certainly if you're a monday to friday worker yeah. Saturday is a good day to enjoy yourself. Just decompress and relax and just see friends. And um, yeah, but that's more in the evening than the mornings. <laughs> How are you finding golf? I personally feel, and I don't know whether this is backed up by any stats, that I'm a natural. <laughs> but, um, I have actually enjoyed it. And I think I was looking for a hobby that took me away from screens because it's really strange that most of our hobbies, even reading, can sometimes involve a screen or it's like documentaries or all of those things. And actually, this I needed a hobby that took me outside. Um, as a woman, I, you know, I don't go running anymore, really, um, which is a shame. I don't run on the streets. Um, that sounds bad, run on the streets. But, you know, I don't, I don't really run outside that much. It's kind of would be on a treadmill again in front of a screen. And so I was really looking for a hobby that, would be active 
but also in nature because I love being outside. But there's not a lot of natural opportunities besides walking to go outside. And I'm quite competitive. And so I think I needed to get that little competitive itch scratched. And so <laughs> golf seemed to tick a lot of boxes. And I also have some very golf, golf mad friends who um, have been trying to get me into golf for years and years. And actually, yeah, it, um, yeah. So I decided to take golf and I really enjoy it when you whack the ball. <laughs> quite a good feeling <laughs> yeah yeah you get a bit of nature you get a bit of exercise you get a bit of stress relief uh, yeah well, well I don't know if you do because I think every time you whack the ball yes and you connect and you get a nice like and you see the ball fly off 200 yards but for every time you do that and you scuff it 17 <laughs> times or miss it or put Mess, it in the woods yeah very frustrating but my golf clubs arrived this week because I've just been you know practicing using the ones at the golf club so my golf clubs have arrived my own ones but I'm hoping to take them out maybe tomorrow or next week this sounds very new year's resolution is, is it got anything to do with that no I started it last November I want to say November and I started it previously five years ago but then didn't keep it up so yeah I'm the same. I had a I had a set of golf clubs that my grandfather disposed of when I was away one day. It was I kept I keep a lot of stuff at my grandparents. I don't know if you do that. <laughs> they always seem to have the spare space. I had a golf set there and he got rid of them one day without telling me. Thanks, granddad. Anyway, Thank so, <laughs> I wanted to uh this is not golf cast. We're not gonna talk anymore on the subject. I really, really wanted to make this happen in person. I was like, right the chains of lockdown are beginning to come off like let's get back in the studio because of the fact today we're talking about communication yeah wouldn't it be lovely to have been able to do it in person I want to use all my faculties so I can communicate as fully with you as possible rather than just in the the ratio <laughs> allowed from this zoom this zoom box how have you found how have you found as a communications professional as a as a consultant dealing with generation zoom the interesting thing about being a newsreader is that you actually spend a lot of time reading into a news into a camera with no one behind it so for mm. me i think this is kind of an extension of something that i've done for a long time in terms of you know most newsreaders are just conveying joyful sad news to no one in a sense you know they're talking down the barrel of a camera and, and giving the news in that way so i don't find it that disconcerting i think the and also, you know, when you read the news, you can see your face in um, the screens around you. So I'm quite used to seeing myself on screen, but I've done a lot of training for people who are not used to that. And I think that has been interesting to try and free people from what they think is really restrictive. But in a sense, actually, it's a great way to keep communicating visually. And actually, it's a brilliant tool um, in lieu of being in person. But I think a lot of people find cameras um, restricting and therefore don't like being on Zoom because they don't like seeing themselves and hearing themselves back. Um, but actually, I think if you can get over that, it's one way that technology has really opened up the world in a wonderful way if we can embrace it as such. Yeah, and and I mean you're right. I think there's way more, way more positives than negatives. The fact that I've been able to have keep this podcast going. Originally, it was just we just recorded in Soho, um, Soho Radio Studios. I really enjoyed the process. I'd go down, get a coffee, get a cake, meet the guests, get to know each other, record the point. But actually, it has enabled us to speak to people all over the world that I would normally go, oh, we're just doing this. Oh, they're yeah, too so far away. It's yeah. you know, too much hassle. There's a time difference and all these sort of things. So, yes, pluses 
outweigh the the minuses but uh, it's lovely it is lovely to do it in fact it's become a luxury actually um yet I, to be enjoyed know, I think we'll, sorry i think we'll appreciate it more i hope so yeah yeah because it's so. such an option on the table we never thought about the day when maybe it wouldn't happen so we put a lot of things off you'd put off meeting your friends because it could happen any time theoretically so it never happened whereas i think now we're going to be more mindful of the facts that sometimes it doesn't happen and can't happen outside of your controls to do it now yeah i think you're right i also i also wanted to have this podcast post reading your book yes. so <laughs> i when we spoke i was we were connected for a friend I didn't know you'd written this. Someone said, oh, you must speak to Janelle. And we had a little chat on the phone. And when we were chatting, uh, I was bemoaning the fact I had this opportunity to write a book. And you went, oh, right, yeah, I've just written a book. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't realise, yes, you have written a book. Uh, one far more successful than I think mine could ever uh, dream of being. This is great. This is, this is amazing. So I'm not a natural page-turning sitting in a chair sitting in one place reader audio books i eat for breakfast and i know you've done this on audio but but i wanted to underline it and annotate it and sort of score it and make notes so i've i'm like no let's do this once i've read it i want to read it and it's been good i think you've you've addressed some really uh, big issues and contentious potentially contentious issues with a real natural clarity it didn't feel um overly preachy or or, or written from from the ivory tower and uh, yeah I, I think you did it you did it well you paid a lot of attention to trying to display uh, uh double perspectives on on hot topics and uh, and i think that was without being completely ambiguous and still saying this is me this is Janelle this is written by a black woman these are my experiences but there's there's an, there's enough effort there to to show I don't know um a certain empathy for other people's perspectives that that I thought was really really helpful uh, for me uh, to access and anybody else that picks up so how how have you found the process of writing a book and then Thank you. getting it out there and, and being known and associated with this this text I think that's the nervousness isn't it with writing a book actually because like you say now that is forever in a print form with my views suspended in the space and time and views of which I hope will evolve as as I evolve so in a sense there was a nervousness around putting my ideas down and with writing a book you know through you go through a couple of iterations and there was one iteration where I was like I'm being so gentle I don't think I'm making the point <laughs> because in in trying to be kind of okay well there's this view and there's this view and I can you know and trying to to give that generosity that there's a risk that actually, like you say, you don't say anything and it becomes very ambiguous of what am I trying to say? And so I kind of went through and said, okay, I think there might be a few uh, slaps in there, <laughs> but there's also many hugs. And so in that sense, that's what I wanted to, didn't want to make it feel like it's just a book that's just punishing completely and all the things that people are doing wrong and everything else. You know, I wanted to, to kind of look a bit beyond that as well as to why we do it, because I think, you know, when it comes to this space, we talk a lot about what people do, but not a lot about why they do it and what might be behind those behaviours. We want people to be who we think they should be idealistically rather than actually who they are. 
And actually, I wanted to look at it from the perspective of not how should we be as, as a society? How are we? Mm. What is driving us? What's making us tick? So that's what I hoped to do in writing the book. Very vulnerable and risky. Um, you know, the vulnerability is all mine, but the risk is, of course, the publishers in taking a chance. Um, and, you know, as any relationship, some of these relationships, you know, we have a differing view of, you know, what we think a book should be or what we think it should do. And I think the more honest that we are about the fact that there just are difficulties sometimes, this is what it is, uh, the better. I found it a rewarding experience, but terrifying. And I wrote the book in about six weeks, the first draft. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, because it was just kind of all in there. But then through the editing process, you refine the ideas, you refine them down. I would probably say the audiobook has a few on the flight edits um, where my thinking has evolved thus further. But no, yeah, I, it was it, it's been an interesting experience. And I and I do feel um, very fortunate to be able to put my view into the world, because I think the more views that go into the world is the richer of a world that, you know, we are. Agreed. Absolutely. And uh coming back to what you said at the start of your answer I think I think that's one of the points you make in your book too it, it, and I'm growing with peace on the subject of sometimes it's okay to have an unpopular opinion we're so desperate not to offend I know I've been like that oh I want everyone to like me yeah <laughs> god forbid I actually have an opinion that that might go contrary to others thoughts and, and and opinions too and create like none of us want to create division but but it's okay to have an opinion opinions are formed from life experience well a lot of the time anyway um but let's not get straight into that now i want to i want to come back to some of the things you said in your book and talk about personal communications but you mentioned it briefly when you said about having experience as a newsreader looking straight down the camera. So I will, of course, give you a spectacular introduction in, the, in this <laughs> podcast. So, but you have spent your career as a, as a broadcast journalist, as a newsreader, worked for BBC, ITV, ITN, you're a communications consultant. Now, what motivated you to take this lived experience, produce produce this but why now is it is it as a consequence of lockdown and the heightened issues around uh racial inequality gender inequality vaccine status and and, and global inequality access to, to is it all of those things that have seemed to have added uh oxygen during during covid and you thought right this is the time to get this this thing out or has it started before COVID. Yeah, it started way before because I signed the publishing deal just as lockdown was beginning. Oh. So um so this, you know, and kind of pushed the publishers to release it quite quickly. But um no, yeah, I signed this book before this idea was here before lockdown happened. Actually, whilst I was writing the book, the murder of George Floyd happened. So that was happening whilst I was writing this book, not kind of um, it didn't happen before I had the idea for the book. But I think in lockdown, it highlighted even more some of the things that I talk about. Really, why I decided to write it was it was after um, Prince Harry and Meghan got married. And there was all of this about the headlines, people saying these headlines are definitely racist. And some people saying these headlines are not racist. And me saying, well, I think the truth is yes, and both bit of complexity in the middle. Um, but seeing that the conversation, it's like you had to pick a side. You had to decide that it was racist or that it was not racist. And she's just not a very nice person, despite most of us not actually knowing her personally. And so I think all of this kind of 
came together in me to think about why do conversations get so drilled down so deeply, so entrenched um, and feeling like you have to then defend everything that's happening on your side. So if you think these headlines are racist and you have to say, well, then Megan is good and true and pure and she's never done anything wrong. And if you say she's not a nice person, well, then it could never, ever be racist. And and, and both of those things um, can be true, cannot be true. And I just really wanted to explore the complexity inside of that and doing comms, you know, like I have to say to people, I need to know what you really want so I can tell you what to, what to do. Mm. Because unless you might tell me, no, 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 I don't want the fame and glory. You know, I just want to do this thing. Well, then your comms are not going to achieve ultimately what you really want. You have to be honest. And I just think sometimes actually in these conversations, there's not that we don't allow that complex honesty that you can be a good person who wants to save the world, but you might also want to be famous. Mm. <laughs> um, and I think the... It, it's that kind of thing that's always going on in our thinking. And I just wanted to address that because I don't think we can really see change until we address the complexity of how we are. It's interesting what you say about pick a side. We have, I think we, we must all acknowledge a, a real growth in, in tribalism, in, in the polarization of the left and the right and the need to find your tribe find your gang i think i've seen that that more on lockdown we've we've obviously gone to the internet for connection i'm locked up in my house i can't meet people down the pub or at the football club or wherever else i normally do so i'll go online this is where i can voice my opinions and this is where i can meet my people and of course we're becoming more aware of the way the internet works and how algorithms work and how clicks work and how they funnel us into these silos where we can find people that agree with the same stuff as us i have uh, i work so this amazingly you know you you might not know i'm sure you do this is not my full-time job either podcasting <laughs> or or running blue bear it's in security i work in security and i work with a variety of of mainly men um in in the close protection world and they they have a variety of of uh thoughts and opinions on on the hot topics of the day some of them have some that i find really hard and uh, sometimes we have to spend a lot of time together and i'll hear the podcast that they listen to and the sort of stuff that they feed on and for me it's really tough i'm like oh this is so toxic this is so unhelpful this is so driven by fear and hatred and hatred of the other and oh but equally that's okay for them to listen to it and to find some truth in in that and i'm sure a lot of the things that i feed myself on they'd find equally as um unpalatable so yeah it's it's i i feel really fortunate existing in these quite different worlds i do get to see some very differing opinions now you've used the word justice in in the strap line of this book creating justice in a world of bias the book communicate for change creating justice in a world of bias what does justice mean to you i think justice to me speaks to fairness speaks to equality um and Fairness and equality doesn't always mean the same thing for everyone, if that makes sense, in, in the sense of um, fairness isn't giving everyone exactly the same thing. I think justice is a world where everyone has what they need. Like a just world is a world where everyone has what they need. 
and where there is, um, to me, justice also speaks to love in the sense of, you know, loving your neighbor. To me, that is justice. Doing right by your neighbor is further justice. Um, so that is probably how I would define justice. So in a, in a just world, that's what I think would happen. Everyone would have what they need. People would operate with love, grace, understanding, um, equality, fairness. Yeah, that's what I think a just world sounds, would look like. Sounds like, a, <laughs> sounds like a good place. When did you first become aware, if you think back to your perhaps childhood or, or, or at some stage of your life, when you first became aware of that concept of justice that you've just described? I guess I don't know if there was a moment really or a thing that happened. I think always aware that our family lived in a different way to other people in terms of going to church, for instance. Um, so I think maybe what I was first aware of was difference more than injustice, or if that makes sense. Mm. I was probably first aware of difference. And then you become aware of how that difference or how people treat or speak about that difference or treat you around that difference. Um, I don't think I would have described it as injustice because our parents raised us quite confidently. So it wasn't that we felt that this made us worse than them, if that makes sense. So there's this really very strong, secure base. So I don't think I would have seen it as injustice. But then you start to read about, you know, in our family, um, you know, understanding why dad would let us, well, not let us, would make us <laughs> watch things like biographies and then autobiographies about like Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. And then you, you get this understanding of, of this thing which you notice maybe in other ways but is not impacting um yourself your well-being your freedom if that makes sense so not really seeing it as a thing it's just can you believe that person said that more than anything as a young child and so I think it's probably more an uncovering of the layers then as you become more and more exposed to the world with a more and more mature mind that you then begin to see Oh, okay, well, this means this, and this is seen like this, because every child, no matter how dysfunctional or functional their upbringing is, that is normal to them. Mm. So I don't think, you know, if a child grows up in extreme poverty, they see extreme poverty as the way of the world, because that is their world. Mm. It's only upon being exposed to other people who have a lot more that you, then you realize more the totality of what that means if a lot of people live like you and those are the people that you know also, your worldview is that. And so I think when we talk about, it's not that children don't understand or don't see, but I don't, we don't understand the full picture. So I think that has been something that has just continued to uncover itself to me and continues to uncover itself to me as I meet more and more people who are not like me in various different ways and understanding the various different levels of injustice that there are, um, I think it's a, a journey of uncovering probably more than a moment. Yeah. And it's when we meet those people, as we grow our understanding of the world is where we need to give each other permission to speak, honestly, speak from a place of, well, this is how I feel based upon what I've read, what I've experienced, whatever. Because if I don't understand that, if you keep your thoughts to yourself, then how am I going to get to know you? Even if I think your thoughts are horrendous, uh, yeah. I'm not going to understand you if they're if they're veiled uh, beneath like the everyday presentability. And uh, one of the things you mentioned in your book, 
let me see i bookmarked it because i wanted to quote it because i thought it was brilliant let me read from Janelle's book, page 33. <laughs> it says, those who are more conciliatory should speak, but often don't. I dare to believe that this group of moderates is actually the quiet majority. I completely agree. Conversely, those who have extreme views tend to be very vocal. They know a lot about their narrow interests, and the more they know about a little, the larger their blind spots. Many of, the many of these determined commentators seldom allow any space for the notion that they might be wrong and 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 you're right you know you go on to expand upon that point but that's certainly been my experience as well with with the more the more contentious issues let's take the vaccine uh, as one of them i just don't i don't want to get out there and start taking my opinion and saying well listen guys let's look at the data surely this is in my opinion on the whole from a public health point of view this is the right thing to do to vaccinate as many people as possible to reduce the impact on the healthcare system etc all the other the well-known rationale behind why we're doing this for me i have no issue with i can understand so i can empathize with those people who have issues with the speed in which the vaccine was produced I can have, uh, you know, I empathize with those people that are concerned. That, hey, well, I'm healthy. Why should I be filling my body with a drug? I can understand with people that say, I don't like that there are pharmaceutical companies making a great profit from this. I can empathize with people that say, I don't like that my freedom to congregate, my freedom to travel, my freedom to get leave my house has been infringed upon and they consider you know, tyranny is a word that's been used like never before in the last few years it feel like it's a tyrannical rule of all of these different nations so i can empathize with those subjects i don't necessarily agree a whole but i can i can get it i get it what i don't get is when it gets to the point that this is a complex well-planned international multinational conspiracy to make very few people super rich and all this and it seems to for me run out of gas when it starts going going in that direction but but people should be allowed to express their opinions right and then one of the things once again i want to put this off and try and put some structure on this because we could talk all day <laughs> about these topics but it's like how do i how do i come into that conversation and not like i've just said you know what i'm going to keep my thoughts to myself because i don't want to end up in an argument <laughs> Well, sometimes it's wise to not end up in an argument, honestly, and that's one thing. I think sometimes we, I do think more people should engage, but I think engage when it's going to be fruitful. I think the thing that I sometimes try to do is ask questions. So, okay, so where did you get that information? Oh, why do you trust that information from where you got it from? Okay, why do you trust that information more than the other information? And so I think for me, it is sometimes more about asking questions than it is about telling people. And I think what happens is people say things like, you must be stupid to believe in these, you know, and, and a conversation like that is just like an absolute non-starter. <laughs> there's, there's nowhere good a conversation goes from that kind of um, putting on of someone, that kind of opinion. But I think that's what people do because they we feel frustrated and we want to make the point very strongly that we think that that's ridiculous. But obviously that that person doesn't think it's ridiculous. They think it's rational and reasonable. So you, you, you can't tell them 
whilst they think they're rational and reasonable, they're an idiot. Mm. And then think that they're going to go, oh yeah, I am an idiot. Maybe it's all wrong. Actually, that is more likely to push them further into their argument and wonder why are you upholding this, you know, tyrannical um, worldwide conspiracy of movement and, and flight, you know. And so I think in that sense, to have that conversation well, it always has to be, I think, about questions rather than about statements and statements about other people's um, appraisal of the information. And I think also sometimes having to recognise that we can have all the same information and we can come to a different conclusion. And being different human beings as we are, that is normal and can happen. I think sometimes people become exasperated that other people just don't see it their way we're all different and I so I try not to always feel too exasperated like you say to understand I can understand how you got there I can understand why it does look like a mass conspiracy I don't think it is but you think it is and I'm just really interested in how you came to that conclusion so for me it's more about asking questions but I think a lot of people actually pronounce statements which is Mm. highly ineffective Mm, yeah Nail your colours to the mast. Right, this is who I am. Who are you? Oh, you're wearing that colour. I'm wearing this colour. And neither the, the twine. You're an idiot. You're not wearing red. So, yeah. So, I think it's about moving it away from that mm. kind of territory into more the questioning. I think time is, has got something to do with it, too, in respect to how much time we allot to these conversations, right? Because to have that conversation you just described, well, okay, let's unpack this. I've traveled before. I've had vaccines before. We've engaged with medication before since we were born, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, that's, that's going to take time. And that person will have a counter argument for each of those points, et cetera. Uh, so you could lose an hour where it'd be far easier to go, no, well, I think you're wrong and I'm right. So let's just not talk about it. Let's, yeah. <laughs> I think that's, that, that's, and that's, and that's, and I think that's where, that's why we are where we are mm. because every conversation takes emotional capacity, mm. even fun conversations take emotional capacity. And realistically I think some of us are probably overstretched in how many relationships we try to do deeply and so actually don't have that time because we're interacting really with people or we have the emotional capacity to interact with that many people on a very shallow basis so there is no there isn't that depth there to be able to have that conversation and I think that's probably the reality of of how we most people's social circles probably quite wide and shallow we would never want to call them shallow because we feel, you know, we, we no, you know, they're not shallow, but a lot of relationships that we have are shallow. It's the occasional message every now and again, the occasional meal. Um, the depth is probably not there to discuss something thorny mm-hmm. over time. And the relationship is more likely to crack and break than it is to survive a tough conversation about something you don't agree on. And I know that is true in my own life. Um, There are some relationships that have not survived lockdown. Um, And that is down to when the chips are really down, it's time to really have that conversation. The depth's not there, Mm. not there. And the the emotional capacity, where there's no depth and no emotional capacity, there's not a lot of will to keep Mm. it going and I think you know these are things if we were all more honest (laughs) about relationships we would probably acknowledge and yeah just to face into yeah I think you've landed on something really 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 interesting there 
in regard to our capacity to have meaningful relationships. I want to do a pitch change and uh, and I want to talk, if I can, with you a little bit about, so we've talking a little bit about interpersonal relationships there. Well, I want to ask you a few questions from a corporate point of view. Yeah. So for people that work in business, charities, churches, NGOs, at an organizational level, I know you're a consultant. I love a freebie. So by having <laughs> sent you a bag of coffee <laughs> and in exchange for that I get an hour of your time I'm going to squeeze it for as much value as I can get <laughs> so um so so we've seen it haven't we we've seen it we've seen organizations get it wrong we will also have seen recently because I've heard you talk about it really really uh, humorously on other podcasts about like this knee-jerk response to like, oh, there's this new movement, Black Lives Matter or gender equality or whatever. And big brand names just do a very arguably, questionably superficial response to it um, without it being particularly backed up in the way their organizations exist. But superficially, we need to do something. We need to respond to this. There's a call on us. How do we, how do we not how do we address these issues fairly without being tokenistic and shallow and superficial and, and all of those other things that we see so often? The first thing I think is the not rushing, you know, people like moths to the flame. They can't wait. <laughs> and then as they get close to the flame, they realize this is actually hot. Okay. I'm burning. Um, and and I, so I think there is something in that about, we really do need to reflect and I think it's sometimes in the rush to do things I remember you know and I've spoken about you know the black squares when people were posting them I actually took the apps off my phone that day because the pressure even as a black person to, to post this solidarity and there was just something in me that was like this is deeply performative um, and especially at the speed at which people are doing it and and I get that people wanted to show something but I think we made posting a black square mean more than it actually did so the non-posting of it meant more than it actually did. And so it was kind of like people are between a rock and a hard place because we want to see that brands are engaged in these issues. So if they don't post it, it's like they're not engaged. But then as a brand, to me, your responsibility behind that posting and behind that day would have been to really actually take some time to reflect and come back with something meaningful. And the fact that people posted their black square did business as usual means this was nothing more than a performative gesture. We've very much seen that that is what this is. For me, I think the very first thing when you as a team are deciding, okay, what should we do about this issue? First of all, look around the table. Mm. Is, are these people, are there women? Is there ethnic diversity? You know, you want to rush to this subject, but look around your, your top tables. Who's here? Because mm. that's the first injustice in that sense, that you are trying to tackle something without actually bringing in the very people who are affected by the problem. And that's the first, you're never going to come up with a good solution for it. You're just, you're just not. Try as we may, six rich friends around a table talking about how to solve world poverty without actually speaking to someone who lives in poverty is disingenuous. You're saying what you think they need from your position because of the things that you have, that you find necessity to you, are the things that now you think they need to have as a necessity for them. And you're going to do that for them. Mm. Not knowing whether that's what they actually want, need, desire, are looking for. And so I think in that sense, that's the thing that 
people first need to do. Look around your tables, who's here, and if the relevant people are not in the room, ensure that they come into the room and not in a way of kind of, okay, well, we're going to help you by allowing you to come in the room, but know that your room benefits from them being in there. And the thing that you're about to do benefits from them being in the room and not just about, you know, diversity in the room, but the freedom for them to think in their own way and the freedom and the voice to speak up for that diversity that they represent or else it's just assimilation. And I think in these moments, really what people want is just to, for it to all go away. That's what they really want. <laughs> so they want to do what they need to do and then return to business as usual. And so that's the second thing. Resist that urge just to return to business as usual. Once you've made a stand, don't just go back to what you were doing before. Choose to do something different and hold yourself accountable to doing something different. And so I think these are the kinds of things that... Um, matter when these moments matter is yes if you want to rush to prove do but it needs to be backed up by something or else I would always say just don't do it mm. in, in respect to what you've mentioned about the diversity in your boardroom or in your teams I, a common argument that you'll hear is is uh, in reference to meritocracy well surely the people that are in that boardroom are there as a consequence of their skills and ability not as a political movement to have more women on the board or more people of different ethnicities on the board the counter argument to that is well uh, what 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 are we judging at or what is this meritocracy coming from like what what where where who'd calls you know where are those parameters where are those measurements being being designed from which says you're more capable than this person <laughs> you've been to this university well what did that person have the chance of getting to that you et cetera et cetera et cetera because it is such a i definitely read it at some point in your book is is where are we taking these standards from um because it doesn't really work work like that help me unpack that would you a meritocracy has never existed anywhere you know i i just i just don't even believe it exists um and if it does exist, it's a meritocracy for a particular thing. And let's be honest, most of these goals have been for united thinking, homogenous thinking. That's the goal. They want everyone on board to be on board <laughs> mm. and they don't want dissenting voices. So they pick people who are like them, who are not going to dissent and who are going to say yes. You know, you look at boards like this all the time. Um, this is, this is what people want. They want to get a particular thing done and they surround themselves with the people that they think are going to be the path of least resistance to get that thing done. Not many people do I know pick their board based on how combative they are with them. I, 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 don't, I have not seen that. Um, because most people, we enjoy being challenged up to a point of where our comfortability is myself included you know I'm not I'm not pointing fingers here at anyone else you know I'm just talking about the human way and if there has been affirmative action well it's been for white men for the longest time like that has been the affirmative action and many people have got their roles by being the same as not being different and now there is a push for difference and people find that uncomfortable because people sense a loss of their own opportunity and that's naturally human to sense your loss of opportunity and what does this change if we start saying okay well actually what we don't have here is a meritocracy what does that then mean about me what do I have to admit about myself maybe I wouldn't be as far as I am if I were a black woman if I were a Chinese man 
all of a sudden you have to start asking yourself some very hard questions about really what are my skills and talents? How, how good am I? No one wants to ask themselves those questions. It's not normal. It's, it's a loss. Um, and so I think in terms of where do we get these standards from, it's just the standard of the person holding the most power in the place. Mm. And they are measuring up everyone against that measurement of basically themselves, mm. which is why most hires, and I saw it on Twitter the other day, I don't know who to credit who said this, but instead of talking about diversity hires, you should ask, is this a homogenous hire? Mm. <laughs> so are we doing a diversity hire? Are we doing a homogenous hire today? Because really that's what that's what we're kind of leaning into. But the thing that I also think is is and also is also true is you can't just say that because there's 12 white men in a room, there's no diversity of thought. That's not true. There will be diversity of thought, but there's not enough difference to make a difference where it counts. And that's what I think we need to be honest about. So we can't just say, well, there's no diversity of thought in there. Those 12 people don't think the same. They don't have the same upbringing, the same life, the same experiences. No, so we can't say that to be true. What we can say is with more difference of women, of different ethnicities, of different you know, disabilities, when we push that, what we'll get is much richer and will more likely reflect our audience back to itself in a mm. better way. From my perspective, we spoke about it before when we when, it, when we first chatted. It's, it's I, I want to be really transparent and um, and open to criticism, and I feel really blessed that I, I feel fortunate. I haven't received a great deal of trolling, <laughs> but, but I have, a little bit, <laughs> a tiny, a tiny bit. <laughs> so I think a bit about what you're saying. So the way the blue bear is structured, if I could be so um, uh, uh, naughty and, and using us as an example and getting your, your your advice, but we don't have a board for for the re- well. We have a board of trustees. We've set up a charity, and I have a Dominican board of trustees in the Dominican. But we're not a big team of people. Largely, it's driven uh, by volunteers and by by my efforts in my spare time. And and I think about that. I do think about that. And then 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 you look at the coffee industry and you think, well, we're buying coffee. Our product of choice comes from the global south, and it's largely enjoyed by middle class people in the UK. And I think about like, how can we? do this narrative better and then we've got the narrative of where this whole thing started which was a an experience i had in the dominican republic with a traffic child of many traffic children and wanting to create a teddy bear fund that became a coffee business so we could create equity to support survivors i've even looked at changing the wording on the website from caring for survivors to empowering survivors so the mm. message isn't looking downwards yeah. and cre- so sometimes it's semantics and sometimes it's deeper than that but I'm so desperate, you know, to get this right that I can't change my ethnicity, my gender, my my class, any of those things. I don't want to let any of those things prevent me doing my best um, around uh, helping people and using my life to to help uh, people who need support. And and um, I don't want to be intimidated by getting it wrong. So I'll just do nothing. You know what? The easiest thing is I'll just keep myself to myself. I won't engage in that sphere because god forbid people could call me a a white savior and all these things but but i do want to be cognizant of those issues i don't want to be ignorant to them i want to get it right or as close to right as i possibly can and then when we disagree on an issue i need to know that i've got the rationale to go well this this is why i do it and i might have got that wrong but it's meant with the best of intentions and i'm learning and 
please you know be be human with me so it's, it's so it's it's for me it's a real it's a difficult one and the main thing I think is listening from this is for me and please speak into it <laughs> but I want to have my ears open I want to know if I'm suddenly using a term that is so old-fashioned <laughs> you know like oh, we don't use that term anymore oh okay um, um, <laughs> but also like my thinking is not old school it's not it's not repeating an unhelpful narrative of the white west saving people of color in the developing world yeah you know, how do we change that i read as many books as i can i listen to as many podcasts but i don't know what advice do you have for me i mean some of the things that i think about you know and having been in and around the charity sector is that one i think a lot of people in the charity sector in the west are very uncomfortable with black people who live in the west you know we think very much about white people in the west helping the global south well there's also Black people and brown people in the West of means have things also doing the same. So that's the first thing that I feel like the charity sector needs to course correct in that thinking. Because, you know, terms like white savior in a sense are not wrong. But, you know, it's kind of even in this country, because the charity sector is so white, it's almost like they forget that there are black people who have means. And so a lot of the time what goes on in these spaces and these conversations is, is, is the conflation of being black or brown and being poor. So when uh, me walks into a charity, everyone doesn't know what to do. <laughs> because in a sense, in their boxes of how people are, white people have and black people don't. And that is the first thing that I think we need to adjust the sales of here on on this end of things is one of just those sales so it would actually be very easy to have a person of color on boards and a person of color working for you because that is actually very possible in our reality but it's almost kind of like that's not a reality but the reason why a lot of black and brown people in this country are not attracted to those roles is because of the way white people are in those spaces so they don't want to work there because it is the savior thing. And they're almost looking at you with that same kind of compassion as they are looking at someone who lives in a very, very, very different circumstance and wondering if you need help like those people need help. So I think there's that first thing about adjusting that, that view of self and of the context of where we are. It's not hard to attract people if your company is attractive to work for. That's the bottom line. Um, and so if you cannot attract any people of colour and you live in a city like London, you have to ask yourself some questions because, you know, people of colour are everywhere, very high percentage. If you live somewhere else, very different. And I think, you know, we have to also look at that proportionality. And then I think the other thing is, it is about thinking when we're talking about empowering, or whether we're talking about caring, whether we're talking about any of these things, how much are we seeing these other people as equal? Because that's the other thing. It's always a hand down, isn't it? I know that going from going on my trip, and I'm sure you feel the same, is how much richness we take, actually, <laughs> of the sense of spirit, the sense of determination, the sense of self, um, the agency these people have, the dignity they have, the pride they have in who they are in their country, in, in the things that they can grow and, and the land and, and all of 
these things. They have all of this pride. And then we tell them, oh, no, 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 you're poor. <laughs> oh, didn't you? Oh, no, yeah. No, you're in poverty. You didn't know. Okay, well, I'm, I'm alerting you to this. And I really need to think, I really think we need to think about what, what, what are we meaning? What are we talking about? What are we talking to people about? How are we overexposing them to one element of themselves and underexposing them to the richness that they have in other elements? And a lot of the richness that we then take away to um, mine for a new gratitude for all that we have. I think we just need to look at the fact this is a very complex relationship in which the power dynamics are unbalanced because we have made it so, because we have made ourselves the givers. There are children trafficked in this country. What for them? You know? And so I think it's not about not doing or not being, but I think it's about we need to reimagine what charity means um, in the sense of, you know, what are we saying we're doing when we're doing it? Reimagine the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves, reimagine the stories we tell other people about themselves to really begin to get a complex understanding of the fact that like the, you know, this, the scenario I use in my book, you know, if I don't have lunch money today and you give me five pounds, did you save my life? No, you gave me five pounds for my lunch today. It's helped me out of a hole. <laughs> Should I be grateful? Yes. Do you then have some kind of, um, well, you know, look what I've done for Janelle. Like I, I, you know, I gave her five pounds for lunch. Janelle should be grateful to me because we're not for me. And here I'm going to take a picture of Janelle and I'm going to post it and say, look what I did. I bought someone lunch today. Listen, I'm not saying don't take the picture. Don't be glad you did it. But I'm saying we all just need to think a little bit more deeply about what it all means and how we're truly viewing people and whether we're truly viewing them as equal or as projects to be helped, because that's the problem. The problem is not that we're helping people. The problem is the attachment we put to it for us and for them in the helping and the way that we talk about it. That's the problem. Mm. So, you know, do I have a concrete answer today? Probably not. But what I am saying is, I think especially for those who work in that sector, it's a lot of deep self-examination about what you're doing and why and how you really view the people that you say you want to help. How do you really view them? Are they equals? Are they projects? Yeah, and I think you have to do it over and over and over again, don't you? You have to keep checking yourself at multiple points. Okay, what's my motivation behind this? Could the, you know, is this right? Am I okay with this? Should I share this with other people and get their thoughts first before we post? And what um, it's easier just to stop you know throw content out there and messaging out there without thinking because we know it's for the right place yeah but actually they haven't truly like you say really examined it and I think you know as I say in the book I think especially in the charity sector space and I'm using this in general people think that the ends justifies the means and I don't believe that to always be true so like you said people throw content at the wall because they say well because we're doing it for the right reasons it's really I think it's a really complicated issue that that particular if we were to take one issue is is charity how we do charity well and better and and all those things it was definitely something i'm sure you do talk on boards and and um like conferences and stuff like that but that's yes. sort of thing I'd, love to, <laughs> I'd love to spend more time thinking about one of the things that we've set up in the dominican is a dominican board of trustees and what i desperately want is for the dominican board to 
develop an ability to raise capital from that country i yeah. know the country very well there are a lot of rich people in the dominican republic part of the battle is is the awareness of this issue of the exploitation of children mm. in the country and it's far better that 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 mm. message being communicated by by dominicans about a dominican issue than by me um and so so that's something we've we've intentionally done but something that's slightly nuanced is what they said in the early days um when we said so i said well i will have nothing to do it i'll be in the background i want to support mm. you they said no we want your presence we want your involvement because in here your presence gives greater credibility to this organization on the basis there's so much uh, endemic corruption mm. in the charitable sector over here your presence gives more legitimacy to it. and you think well you don't hear that message very often and and i and i wasn't expecting that i was trying like like i was saying trying to get it right trying to get it right but both, but um, both things can be true in mm. that sense do you know what i mean and, and it is true you know it's true in all things you want to do something your mom tells you to do it you don't do it someone else tells you to do it you do it why because you're very familiar with your mom <laughs> so familiarity breeds contempt true but for me it's like okay well where's the dominican diaspora in this country that could be a bridge i'm not saying that you haven't interacted with them but I'm, you know where's the dominican diaspora in this country that could be a bridge for you with this organization could help you to think about the story. And I think that's what people often don't do. They don't use the, the, the people in their context who actually are very much like them, but have the understanding also of home. And so I think, you know, I remember getting into contact with my friends and, you know, when the COVID and lockdown, they're trying to make their teams more diverse, but they were, had a hiring freeze and, you know, so they couldn't promote people internally to leadership, people of color. But my question was, well, that's because for too long, you haven't hired any. Mm. So this is, you, you look at it as it's a today, but it's not a today problem. It's a problem of the way you've always been doing it, which has been highlighted today by the need to do something very different, which you now cannot do because you don't have those people in the organization. And so I think sometimes that's what we think, well, what, what can I do? The people are all around, but we just don't view them in that way as that they would be as helpful as they can be to us in that context. No, it's really, really interesting points, certainly for me to, to think about. When you look for examples of best practice, I don't know if you've heard of something called the Radiade Awards. Have you heard of this? It's really funny, actually, if you if you Google it, it's um, I think it's a Dutch organization. It might be a Norse. It might be from Norway, but they like celebrate the best fundraising videos in the charitable sector and the least helpful yeah. really sort of poke fun oh yeah I think I've, I've seen the award outcomes but I didn't know the name but yeah it's good it's, I don't know what it's got to do with radiators it's like the rusty radiator in the gold I have no idea but but it, it's good it's really good and I I I enjoy watching the to the two but why is this a really unhelpful video of a poor kid in the sedan looking sad with flies on his face and then why is this a helpful video the way they've totally reframed this message and uh, but it, it takes it you've got to be clever you know it, it's it, it's you can do like you said the path of least resistance it's easy to do this sad faces generate charitable donations yeah. but actually that that messaging can be far more empowering and more effective if it's done right but it's not always easy you mentioned your father I think you might have mentioned him in this talk already but you do talk about him lots in books and in conversations he's obviously had a big impact on your life he was a bishop wasn't he and yeah uh, and is, is he still a bishop um well he doesn't he's not in pastoral work so would still have the title but not 
the job <laughs> if that makes sense you know the hard work to go with it he's retired now oh he's retired very good but I want to ask and I suspect it's the case did he does he provide you did he provide you with really positive examples of communicating around these difficult hot potentially contentious and divisive topics oh yeah I've learned so much from of communicate of my communication style from my dad and my mom so much of it but my dad is like an antagonist <laughs> he is someone who you know dog with a bone the right thing to do tries to always do the right thing always advocates loudly and strongly for the right thing to do you know I've had that as an example in all of my life that if you see something going wrong you don't just stand there you 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 be the one to stand up I remember I was in this WhatsApp group and I was like, oh, you know, there's a few things that I think are not like, yeah. And my dad said, well, if you're staying in the group and you're not saying anything, then you're part of the problem, you know? So I've very much grown up with that kind of thing of it is your responsibility where you see injustice to speak up, say something, do something, act, move. Don't just stay there and just collect the spoils for the status quo. And I have very much taken that on, you know, myself, his communication of it. My dad has always been a very good communicator because he is also an avid reader. He's a doctor of philosophy and theology. And so, you know, he's always been the wordsmith and always saying it in such a certain of a way. And then my mother is like one of those smiling assassins who will, um, who, who can cut you to the quick um, very nicely and very graciously. Um, I've not always managed to be as gracious as my mother, but I learned a lot from the way that they do things with precision, with thought, but in the end to achieve something and not always, you will not always personally win from it but it will be a win for the right thing. And very much that has been how my parents have operated in their own lives and, and what I've seen. Um, so yeah, that's definitely had a big impact on me. Yeah, I can see it imbued in, in your work and in, uh, in, in everything you produce. It's, it's great that you've had those influences on, on your life, that freedom to speak your mind as well, which which many of us take a long time to gather the 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 courage to do so. Many of us never achieve it either. So that's that's an amazing blessing. Zoning in from the corporate back to the the personal, and I'm thinking about the sort of listeners to this podcast. A lot of them are engaged with the charitable sector. A lot of them would consider themselves engaged with the, the subject of justice. There's a million podcasts listening to. Why would they listen to this? Because they care about justice. And and uh, I think of the term because I've got friends that couldn't care less, and uh, I, they often send me pictures of transformers <laughs> with social justice warrior like me. <laughs> to sort of tease me it's almost become a pejorative term to be social justice social justice yeah. warriors but it's become it how do we how do we address those things one of the things you say is is how do we recognize our biases i'm not racist i have a no bias i'm colorblind all this no that's rubbish <laughs> that's rubbish we all have them right <laughs> yeah no i think you know i guess when it comes to thinking about how do we 
address our biases. I think just be honest that you're a human being with bias and everyone has them. And the more we try to pretend that we don't have them is the more we try to cover them up. Human beings are leaky, but other people will see it and they will not trust you. And that is why I think the justice sector has a bad name because a lot of people who want to seek justice and, and advocate very loudly, this is what they want to do, are themselves unjust in some ways. And it can be seen. So people take this kind of double standard and so I think the thing I'm kind of saying is, look, no one can be passionate about everything. No one can carry every cause in their heart. So stop pretending that you can and that you do. And, mm. you know, I remember someone was calling me out and saying, you know, you need to care about this. And I said, I will never care about this as deeply as you do. You know, I, I can learn more about it, but actually I'm very passionate about this thing. And you probably will never care about this thing as much as I do. And we have to both be okay with that. But I think we kind of live in a world where we jockey people to be as passionate about and as care as deeply and, and fight for the things that we would. And it comes down to this thing again, look, if we all look after the patch of grass <laughs> where we see the injustice and we tend to that, we'll have a very pretty garden. But if we are all forced to stand on one little patch of land and we all tend to this, nothing changes apart from this one patch of land, which doesn't make a difference for everyone. And so therefore people feel nothing's been done. So I think people in the justice sector need to have that self-examination and not just kind of, well, I'm just doing my best because you know what, sometimes I do my best and sometimes my best is not good enough. And that is the reality of the situation. Sometimes my best is not good enough, but it's true that it is my best. So I think we need to think sometimes, yes, I want to be involved in this work, but have I looked at myself deeply enough? Should I be involved in this work? Do I need to go away and think about some things before I become more vocal about my views? Because actually there are some scores within myself that are unsettled. Do I need to settle those scores? Do I need to come to the truth of where I do have biases? Mm -hmm. You know, you can't just be affronted that someone called you racist but yet not address anything that might be going on in you that might present that way to someone else. I'm a deeply flawed human being. Um, I've said it before, you know, Hillary Clinton says, some people say I'm the best person I've ever met and some people say I'm the worst and they're both right. And I think that is true for most humans. We're nice to the people we like and we're not as nice to people that we don't like. This is very normal. But when we pretend, no, I don't do that. All of a sudden you become disingenuous. No one's going to trust anything you say because we all know that to be a lie. You know, I don't have any racism in me. Most human beings have a preference for people that look like them. This is just a biological fact. <laughs> so somehow you want me to believe that you are defying all the laws of science and biology by yourself. If you try and tell me that untruth, I believe you to tell untruths and to tell lies. So I think the reason why the sector has a bad rap is because of that. So I think it's for people to not just kind of say, well, you know, I just try my best and I can only do what I can do, but to actually really take some time to take that self-examination about what they're doing and why, and to really consider it and whether it's a good place for them to be doing work or if there is more work on oneself to do. No one's ever going to be perfect, but if you pretend it's not there at all, then that's a big problem very interesting i always go back over these podcasts to look for like a one minute excerpt to, to to share on our socials or look for a title and i think the title this one i'm gonna put human beings are leaky by <laughs> is what i i it's, it's true and we are we are 
we are what what as a man thinks so he is you know out of the heart the mouth speaks whatever is in your heart will come out and so when really you do have a bias or you do feel that white people are superior and you don't want to recognize that I tell you it will come out in the things that you say in the people mm. you hire in the people you don't hire in the people you trust in the people you don't trust in the people you choose not to socialize with because there's a more better more you way it will come out and people won't trust you another quote you referenced <laughs> there was uh that that i think was really good you give this example of your friend complaining about being left-handed and every time yeah. she goes through the tube so this is such pain because i'm left-handed and i have to change my hand to use my pass to scan into the tube because it's made for right-handed people and you're like <laughs> like I can't be that upset about. Yeah, because but when she said it, it just never occurred to me. Never in a, never in a million years would I have thought of that myself. Never. But what? But 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 your <laughs> quote is, which I think is absolutely spot on. When we aren't affected by a problem, we have no investment in solving it. Right. So, so and that's it's so true. I got into this conversation with my friend recently, sort of mid Black Lives Matter, Sever Everard, very anti police. Uh, me being an ex-police officer um there's a lot of anti-police uh, feeling sentiment uh, politically on the news and in, in culture at the time this is joe he's uh, my he's a friend of mine he's a black man we've spoken you know we've been best friends since we were sort of 16 years old at college and his partner is black and and he wanted to talk about it with me You're like oh i need to talk about this because i've been defending the police based on you based on my relationship with you. And like you talked uh, earlier on about monolithic, homogenous thinking, the police are bad or based on a couple of, of instance or whatever. And that's condensing this organization, multiracial, multi-ethnic, multi-gender organization. I mean, the Met's got the biggest employer in the UK, 32,000 officers, whatever, into one thing, one representation and how unhelpful that is. And what I thought was interesting is when I get, close and i often withdraw to speaking out and hey this isn't fair because da, 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 da. Mm. it's because suddenly i'm impacted because right? that's so, you they're talking about you that's why exactly <laughs> and suddenly i want to respond you want to for all defend. these other topics you want, I want to, defend. to defend you want to and defend that's... the part of you that yes. could be seen as that yes. and we just all have to recognize that this is what we do this is very human <laughs> when we feel threatened we defend we react we antagonize we push we poke because that is the human way yeah that's absolutely the sort of conclusion that we we came to in this conversation it's like i only speak up when i feel like i'm being attacked when there's so many other opportunities to engage but it's only because i'm oh i'm being a fringe i don't like this and yeah and i think this is the human way let's all accept we are human we are complex other people are human other people are complex within that complexity there will be areas of overlap for joy, areas of overlap for, for, you know, the opposite of joy, the opposite of that. And that actually we just have to meet people where they are. We need to look at our institutions. We need to look at, you know, why it's harmful that people see it that way, both internally and externally. What does that mean for society? But actually where do they need to change and not be defensive? You know, I've got a, my the battery on my laptop was dying but um I was on news night the other day talking um about baby loss and talking about midwives and the reality for me 
is that midwives carry bias like everybody else. But when we make an industry almost, well, we can't say that you can't say they're racist, I'm not saying they're racist, I'm saying that everyone has bias and that means it will affect someone's outcomes. Same with the police. So when we're dealing with these big institutions that have a lot of power and control over other people, it is really important that we recognize that, yes, it might only be one or two, but that can have massive consequences for so many people in so many ways because of the power they hold. And so when we have these conversations and when we want to defend and, you know, once talked about the police and someone got in my DMs and, you know, his wife was crying because she's a police officer. And I was like, mate, it's like, what if someone said something about ministers and, and priests and your dad? I said, listen, my dad would be the first one to be out there shouting for justice, as would I, because it matters not to me that my dad is part of that. What matters to me is actually people are being harmed and hurt. That's my concern. When we risk, when we defend sometimes the indefensible, we're not thinking about the people who are actually really affected by this in multiple ways. And so I think that's always the other thing that I just try to consider. I've got one last question for you since your battery. Before my laptop dies. Okay, I've got to pick between two of these. One, and I'm going to, you can have either one. Um, one of them is if you could change the world in, in one way, what would okay. it be? Your second option, Janelle, is what makes you angry about the world and what gives you hope? So it's kind of a double header. Which of those two? If you could change the world in one way or what makes you angry, what gives you hope? I'm going to return them both. If I could change the world in one way, I would give everyone good self-esteem because I think that would be one quick way to make the world a better place. If you love yourself, you can love others. If you cannot love yourself, you cannot love others. So that would be one quick hit for me. And then I think what makes me angry about the world is just seeing vulnerable people unprotected um I believe everyone has a voice I don't believe in voice for the voiceless but I do think that sometimes we choose to ignore certain voices and we don't allow them a say and I think I feel especially um strongly about that when it's children um children going hungry children being abused children you know all of those things and also elderly people in that same breath I just think the vulnerable a society should be judged by how they care for the vulnerable among them. And I would say that in this country at the moment, I would say we're not doing a very good job. And that makes me angry that some children go hungry. What gives me hope is that I think there are enough people who do want to change the world. And I also think that increasingly a lot of those people who do want to change the world are now having these complex communications um, with each other, with others, are thinking more deeply about how they are, their biases, their baggage. And that gives me hope because it means that actually people are considering, okay, we do want to do good, but how can we do it better? Lovely, beautifully put, well staggered, ended on a positive note. Janelle, for people who are listening and thought, this woman's talking sense. I want to find out more about her. Where can we send them? So I'm on, you know, all the social media channels, um, sometimes arguing, sometimes remembering not to argue because I have written this book. So you can find <laughs> me there at Janelle Aldred. Um, also, my book's available at all good bookstores. Uh, and bad ones. Ordered into, and bad ones that, that don't do the best for the planet, but we still use them. Um, and so, yeah, so all of those bookstores and also my book is now on Audible. So if you like to listen to it, then I would say, um, yeah, it's on there um, to listen to as well. So, yeah. 
Thank you for giving me your Saturday morning. You're so generous, so very kind. It's been great to talk. It's left me with lots to think about too. Have a wonderful weekend, Janelle. And let's, please, let's stay in touch, can we? Can we be friends? Yes. <laughs> we can be friends. I'm benevolent. No, joking. Yeah, we can be friends. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. I hope everyone enjoyed the conversation. Back with the bang. Starting the new year on the Justice and Coffee podcast, the way we mean to continue. Thank you, Janelle. If you haven't done it yet, could I ask you to rate and review this podcast on whichever hosting platform you use? I saw the other day that somebody had actually given us a three-star review. Three stars! So I looked at the name of our reviewer and it just so happened to be my mother, who, when questioned, explained she thought she'd pressed the five-star button. Oh, yeah. So we need lots more five stars to improve the average overall rating. Thanks to mum. This podcast was produced by Blue Bear Coffee Company. You can find out more by going to our website at bluebearcoffee.com or follow us on social media at Blue Bear Coffee Co. We look forward to having you with us for the rest of the year on the Justice and Coffee podcast. Thank you for listening today. Peace.